Why not become a My Perfect Console Patreon supporter? For just $5 a month, you will get your episodes early and ad-free. You'll get access to the members-only My Perfect Console Community Lounge. You'll receive guest announcements exclusively before the general public. You can pitch questions to future guests, download bonus episodes in which guests answer those questions, and vote in the annual My Perfect Console Best Console of the Year knockout competition coming later in 2023. Hop along to www.patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole and become a supporter. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is a Canadian cartoonist and creator of one of the best-loved graphic novels of the 2000s. Born in London, Canada, he joined the film studies programme at the University of Western Ontario, but dropped out and moved to Toronto where he became involved in the city's comics scene. His first graphic novel, Lost at Sea, was published in 2003. The following year, he published Scott Pilgrim's Precious Little Life, a graphic novel featuring a distinctly Canadian superhero who must battle his new girlfriend's seven supervillain exes. A melting pot of video game references and manga storytelling techniques, the story featured a cast of smart and witty 20-something dropouts. 
my guest expected Scott Pilgrim to sell a thousand copies. In fact, the six-volume series sold more than a million, and in 2010 was adapted into a film directed by Edgar Wright, in which Michael Serra plays the lead role. An eight-part animated series titled Scott Pilgrim Takes Off is due to launch on Netflix later this week, for which the entire main cast from the film have reprised their roles. Welcome, Brian Lee O'Malley. Hey, Simon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. So, Brian, the Netflix show is an unusual project, I think, in some ways, because it's not it's not just a sort of recreation of the of the original graphic novels or of the of the film it's sort of a complete rewrite of the Scott Pilgrim story one of the characters says the game has changed but the players stay the same <laughs> how did how did that come about then that uh, that de- the creative decision which seems quite bold and interesting to me yeah i just um you know we live in kind of like a reboot remake culture um so i think we're all aware of various uh, attempts that have been successful or, or not or or outside the box or inside the box. Um, so, you know, I'm already working in a tradition of remakes and reboots. So, so how can I, um, bring something new to the table? And for me, it was just, you know, I just have to experience everything as if it's fresh and new and, and just take things one step at a time. In this case, I had a a great co-writer, uh, Ben David Grabinski, who he came up with one of the central things that kind of flipped our script on what, what we could do with Scott and his friends. So, you know, a lot of credit to him and to our great team at Science Star who animated everything. Mm. Did you feel any moments of resistance, sort of loyalty to your younger self when those suggestions were coming up for sort of how to completely take a different path, I suppose, with the story? I mean, no, it's not really. Like, I, I was there to protect the elements that I thought were worthy of protection, but I was also there to be able to update or, or um, re- reflect on things that, that um, I did back then that I wrote or drew that, you know, it, it's just uh, things change and I change. And even though I'm still the same core being, you know, I, I approach this uh, as, as I am now and in the world we live in now. So there's ultimately always going to be some kind of changes. And I just wanted to kind of embrace that change. Yeah. I mean, it's not Scott, Scott, the original Scott Pilgrim doesn't strike me as a sort of piece of work where there were lots of things that feel culturally insensitive right. today. You know, it was it was like, you know, progressive at the time and all of that stuff. So, you know, was there anything there where you thought, oh, maybe I should maybe maybe we need to update this for the 2020s? Um, only kind of in a broad macro sense of just, uh, you know, the, the chatter around Scott Pilgrim is always is always evolving. But in the last few years, there's, there's been a kind of a current of um, Scott is the worst character in his own story or, or Scott is the villain of his own story. So it was fun to kind of play with that expectation a little bit without getting into any particulars about it. Yeah. Is it, there's, this can be risky, though, like as a creative person listening to to too much of that chatter, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I can lead you down uh, down dangerous paths, can't it? Yeah. I mean, that that ultimately is not my my focus. My focus is on basically on my myself and my own, uh, <laughs> you know, examining my own history and my own memory and, and things like that is what I always kind of do with my art. So I wanted the show to, to feel like me and to feel like what, what I do and what I'm interested in. So <laughs> yeah, in a lot of cases, it's new stuff and it's in some cases it's modernized in some small way or, or done with like a wink that we know we are modern now, even if this is not the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I absolutely loved it and it's, it made me laugh so many times. Oh, so that humor that you had in the original has absolutely been 
protected and recreated i think for this so yeah hats off that's great to hear yeah i i you know that's that's been the goal just just to kind of do it with love and to kind of get back into the mindset that i had then which and uh, scott pilgrim means well the character and the franchise i think it means well so uh the intentions are generally pretty good so i i really hope that fans yeah. love it yeah i'm sure they will so yeah as i mentioned in the intro the the books and of course the, the new show as well are infused with video game references but you know back in 2004 it was it was quite a rare thing in culture you know when i first read them you know games despite the size you know everyone even at that time would trot out how you know games made more money than film or whatever all that stuff but you know they still sort of felt quite niche and parochial and even you know borderline embarrassing sometimes you know at that time you know as a 24 year old how confident did you feel that the references you were putting in would land with readers all of the you know some sometimes obscure games that you were referencing i mean yeah i didn't think that far ahead like you said i didn't expect it to really go to a very wide audience but what what kind of sparked it was at the time i i was in a, i joined a band i moved to toronto when i was like 22 or 23 and i joined a band there uh these you know kids that i met online you know just through all our conversations hanging out rehearsing and stuff like i i realized they were into the, all the same nerdy stuff i was into but to me like i i'd seen them as like very cool because i just came from a smaller town to the big city and here's these cool kids playing in a band um they were very aspirational to me but um you know they they knew what super mario 2 was and then things like that so yeah it was it was like oh these cool people um are still like they still have the same foundational dumb stuff that i do right, right. so um maybe the 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 thing that i'm doing with scott pilgrim which plays with memory and and pop culture is like maybe that's viable and it was more viable than i could have imagined yeah yeah like before before this conversation i actually went on one of the main wikis for scott pilgrim which has a list of all the video game references from the books oh wow yeah it's exceedingly long and like like you say super mario and sonic and final fantasy are all in there but there's also like loads of lesser known titles so to to quote a few rival schools mother to bonks adventures you know gears how like when you were writing the books how intentional were you about the games you wanted to include and reference you know did you have a big list or did that you just write them in as and when you had an idea yeah i don't i never had a list I, was, I still don't remember all of them i've always meant to kind of do maybe a stream or something where i where i just go through the books and try to actually pick out every single thing um because i've never done that but um yeah, it was just kind of uh, improvising and and finding the things that worked, and then as as it kind of started to click with the subsequent volumes, you know, more and more, and and with more confidence, I was able to kind of bring those things in. But the, I mean, the, it really, I think it started with um, with Street Fighter because I had to draw fights, and I just had no background in that. I had no, I didn't know where to find reference material for punching and kicking, so I turned to um, Street Fighter character moves. And then that kind of sparked, like, uh, you know, if, if they can do this, like, what else can they do? Yeah, right. You know, my characters could do anything. So, um, yeah, it just kind of freed me in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such great source material, those Capcom games, because they, Capcom in particular, just really spent a lot of effort, didn't they, on animation frames? Yeah, I mean, I, I almost put it on my list. I ultimately took it off. But, yeah, th- that whole period in the late 90s uh, of Capcom arcade games is very... Uh, foundational to me and and 
nowadays you can just look on your phone and find a million cool images. But back then, like I would have to leave my house, go to the arcade and see the newest games from Capcom. And that, that was how I saw the coolest art in the world, like the contemporary drawings. It was just uh, inspirational. Trying to remember the, the frames of animation for when Ryu <laughs> throws a punch or something. Yeah. Yeah, all the way, like, uh, yeah, the Street Fighter 2 and then through the X-Men games and Marvel versus Capcom, things like that. Yeah, they were so, um, so incredible. And I have some great art books from that period. But um, ultimately, I didn't put the games on my list because they're just not, they don't take up, I mean, I, I can't play them forever, I think is a way to right, put it. Right, yeah, yeah. And if it was my perfect console, I want to be able to play them forever. Well, that seems like a good point to come to the premise of the podcast. So, Brian, I've asked you to pick the five video games you'd like to put on your ideal fictional video game console. You've picked five very fine games. Excited to talk about these. So why don't you tell us about your first game? What, what is it and why do you love it? My first, uh, it's, it's, I believe I put River City Ransom, didn't I? It's um it's up here on my wall behind me. You can't see it right now, but um I do have a copy of it here. I was born in 1979, so my childhood pretty much coincided with the NES Nintendo era in America in Canada. But I didn't get one until about 1990, so I was pretty late in the game. Uh, you know, when you look back at the life cycle of the console, that's very late, uh, right before the Super Nintendo started to come out. So um. I've always liked late console games because they're just more developed and more interesting. River City Ransom was kind of like a riff on on the side-scroller, which was still a pretty early genre. Stuff like Double Dragon was very big. Um, River City Ransom, I, I, I have a strong memory of um, renting it with a friend and having a sleepover when I was like 10 or 11. And um, we had never seen it before. We just played it all night, and it was like... You know, a really nice, uh, cool experience, and and um, and then the, the game, it has a distinctly Japanese look, even though it's the River City Ransom is a translation. It has nothing to do with that in the original text, so it became kind of this like mysterious hybrid thing of like a Japanese look and and this kind of Americanized text, and um, and just the aesthetic just kind of led me to to, to a whole world of uh, aesthetics that I only discovered like in you know the following 10 years or so of of anime and 80s manga and and all sorts of stuff it was your gateway in yeah so for anyone who doesn't know it's sort of i suppose it's a bit like double dragon which is perhaps the slightly more famous mm-hmm. scrolling beat em up you control uh, two little dudes who are running around and trying to beat people up and it moving along the screen right yeah and then the, the innovations that river city ransom brought was it's two players simultaneous you can you can hit your friend accidentally or on purpose um and then also there's all this dialogue when when the when you punch someone they say stuff and they have stupid dialogue and it's funny they say barf they say like kind of childish things um they, they talk like teenagers which is what they're supposed to be that always really appealed to me um and then the world map is sort of traversable in any direction which makes it very different from most of those side scrollers um it's just like a big maze-like town that you can wander around through and you can buy power-ups and things it's just it's very um it comes at a really strange time in video game development where genres are kind of getting piled on top of each other right yeah yeah yeah. 
Yes, so so cool. I think was there a, a remake recently of R- R- River City Ransom? Yeah, there's been a few things, but there there is a um, there's a new continuation of the franchise called River City Girls. Mm, right. Yeah. That's um, uh, you know uh, it's got cute girls as protagonists instead. And it's very very pretty game. And of course, Scott Pilgrim was turned into a scrolling beat 'em up. Uh, yeah. Around the time that the film came out, didn't it? It's very fine uh, scrolling beat 'em up. In fact, Do you, you know, did you take any? Any design cues from River City Ransom when when helping put that one together? Yeah, for sure. I'm sure it was one of the main things we talked about, um, along with the the arcade based games in that genre. Like uh, Konami had a, a slew of them in the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, X Men, The Simpsons, and all these licensed games. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was the biggest one over here, I think. Cadillacs and Dinosaurs was a good one. Was that that was Capcom, I think. And Final Fight. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Capcom had a great um, series of uh, Dungeons and Dragons ones that that were yes, so beautiful. So yeah, um, but yeah, so we took inspiration from all those things, and with the game, it was kind of like stripping out as much uh, extraneous story as possible and just letting the game tell the story, what little story there had to be, which was cool. Yeah, very cool. Right, let's uh, Brian, let's come to your story then. So yeah, you mentioned there that you grew up in a. I guess a small town. I, don't, I mean, it's called London, but it's it's not as big as our London, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's still quite a big town, but um, I, I grew up all over the place. So bef- prior to London, I was in a smaller town called uh, North Bay, Ontario. That's where I had the aforementioned uh, River City Ransom uh, religious experience. Um, <laughs> yeah, I probably lived there from about 1990 to 92 or 93. Um, moved around quite a bit as a kid. Uh, why was that then? Was that your, your folks for their work yeah just i think my dad's job and stuff just led us around uh not not around the world or around the country but just around ontario like this sort of the small province where we lived yeah what was he doing uh he was uh in the law he was a lawyer and various types of lawyer over the years and you you're am i right in saying half korean and half french canadian is that right yeah um i think so yeah my mom's uh was full korean and and my dad was uh i mean is uh french canadian and we have an Irish name, so there's some Irish heritage there. And what uh, what effect did that sort of cultural mix have on you? How present was that in the household, I guess, the, the Korean side of, of your family? Um, well, the, yeah, honestly, the Korean side was buried a lot of the time. Like, my mom was very um, set on assimilating. She spoke perfect English and um, became a French teacher. So um, she was very good at language, and she was very good at kind of like... Uh, fitting in code switching i guess you'd call it right yeah 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 you know i'd, I'd see my family every uh, you know year or so see cousins and uncles and aunts and things and eat korean food but it was not a huge part of my upbringing did you did you visit korea i never i've never been to korea no i'd, I'd like to go someday but i haven't been yet yeah. yeah but i think this i kind of started to have a fascination with like anime and games like i think because they had sort of an eastern aspect to them i think that kind of appealed to me yeah a way to sort of cor- connect i guess with Perhaps some of that. So, and then you know, obviously, obviously, you you become a, a cartoonist. So, when did you realize that you were good at drawing? I mean, I had always been drawing as a kid. I was just constantly drawing. And um, in middle school, I, I, which is what age twelve to thirteen ish, I, I was drawing a lot of comics with a, a classmate of mine that we were great friends, and we both loved comics. Do you remember what it was about? Oh, it was an X Men ripoff called X Power. Yeah. We we did like dozens of issues of X Power um, that that are just absolutely terrible ballpoint pen comics like what you would call like a shit post nowadays like just just being silly you know yeah right 
But uh, but I guess that that got you. You know, where was that coming in from? Then were you buying lots of comics? That's where you you knew sort of the 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 form. Yeah, there was a point in the late '80s when X Men comics were actually like very big. Like they were culturally omnipresent for a minute there. Um, so I I just experienced them like in the wild, like in in class at recess. Um, kids would be trading X Men comics, and I started reading them and. and um, <laughs> And then I remembered my my older cousin had had some X Men comics, older X Men comics stashed away, and I remember reading them one summer, and kind of getting deeper into it that way. But yeah, it was it, access was always a problem back then. You know, it's just whatever you can get your right. hands on yeah. would be your biggest influence. Did you ever enter any art competitions? Competitions? I don't. I don't really think I did. I don't remember because I I remember winning a singing competition when I was in second grade or something <laughs> when i had the voice of an angel but um right yeah i don't think i ever really submitted much art wise i was just kind of i don't know i had a confidence about my art but but not 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 brazen confidence i guess yeah right um i i took an animation course one summer when i was uh probably 14 and um i remember i i kind of like excelled at it i was i was the teacher's favorite but I, I, for some reason, I just didn't like the experience. I never went back to animation. Right. Okay, let's, uh, Brian, why don't we come to your, your second game then? So this is a, a PC game. For- That's right. Yeah, I've, I'm sure I've said this a million times, but yeah, one of my all-time favorites, Monkey Island 2 uh, by Ron Gilbert. You know, in the in the eighties, going to the nineties, like adventure games on PC were a huge, huge thing. We, they were probably the biggest genre for for a minute there. And to me, like this was the perfection of the form. It was very funny, which always appealed to me. I was just always been into this the comedic angle on things. Um, the art is beautiful. The music is great. Uh, it's got a lot of meta aspects to it. But ultimately, it's a, it's a pirate game that's sort of inspired by the Disney ride Pirates of the Caribbean. And um, you're a young pirate who's who's trying to make their way in the pirating world, and uh, it's just silly, anarchic, kind of Muppetish humor, and and uh, I've I've always loved it so much. I still play it every few years. Oh, you do? Yeah, oh, so nice. Did you play the uh, the remakes of the the Michaelis more recently? Yeah, but I hated them. I mean, that, fortunately, they have the <laughs> option to switch back to the old art and things because the the modern art was just so uh, ugly to me. I couldn't look at it. So. Um, but the pixel art is absolutely beautiful, the original. Yeah, it really is, yeah. Yeah, so many games that do that, I think, yeah. It's uh, it's hard to live up to it, yeah. It is hard, and it, it's, it, again, it's difficult to like remember this, but when the Switch came to 3D games, it was almost like just everyone's like, oh, okay, well, this is like the next evolution in how graphics mm-hmm. should look. But it was never that way for me. I was... It felt like a, such an artistic choice to, yeah. to do 3D or yeah, 2D. Yeah, I think it's... It. Yeah, I think we're on the same page there, yeah. I have, I have a conspicuous gap in my video game uh, list here, which which you'll see. Um, this is kind of a involves 3D <laughs> games, really. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So um, let's come back to your story. So you tell me that you you you, uh, you go off and and, and study at film school, but that doesn't quite last. So what was the what was the intention there, and what, and what happens to make you think, well, oh, maybe this this isn't right for me right now? I mean, the internet came into my life in, in sort of late high school. You know, I started making artist friends online and things like that. And so I yeah, I thought I would go to to university for film because I thought it would be applicable to storytelling and comics. There was no kind of comics program and I was either too lazy or or not talented enough to get into art programs locally. Um, There were some famous schools around me, but um, I just, uh, I don't know, maybe I just hate competition. Like I just didn't, I didn't, I I started, I remember starting a big application for Sheridan college, which is a big art college. Um, (laughs) And I, I don't think I ever even finished it or, or applied. So, but I knew a lot of people who went there and, uh, they were very impressive, but I, I, maybe I just, um, I don't know. I, I just wanted to kind of carve my own path. I, I took film studies, but I only lasted about a year and a half, watched a lot of movies, but just kind of didn't really make friends. Kind of had like failure to launch at, at college at the social environment. Right. Um, I got a job at the library there and then I, I started feeling like I, I you know, I, I just work here. Like I just felt like a townie. So, um, you know, I, I eventually I, I kind of gave up on it and I, I ran away and, and went to California for six months where I knew people from online who were doing their comic. And um, that was kind of my comics college, I guess. Right. That's quite a... It's quite a bold decision, isn't it, to to not so, yeah. not only move, but then go and like move in with people you met on the internet in a in another country for a twenty two year old. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> was that a worthwhile experience? I mean, obviously, it was in that it got you into the comics world. Um, but uh, yeah, how do you reflect on that now? I mean, I I think yeah, I think I learned a lot of skills that I still use, just in terms of basic stuff, Photoshop and things like that. Um, I, I really, um, you really pushed me in that regard because those guys were uh, pretty brilliant. You know, we just talked about comics and stories all the time, watched movies, and I, I got a real broad education there. Um, yeah, unfortunately, they weren't maniacs and no one killed me or, or anything. I didn't get run over when I was, you know, without health insurance in the US or anything mm-hmm. like that. So um, I made it through unscathed. It was pre 9 11. And I actually managed to come home before 9-11. So I'm um, mm. grateful for that too. 
you know, I, I've known other people who got kicked out of the U.S. and can never go back. So it's, it's, uh, I got lucky. I, I tried to toe the law, you know, and, um, you know, I, I learned a thing or two, um, but I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. There's just so many like kind of building blocks that go into me that, that are so, yeah, you can't imagine taking them out, but they're so yeah. strange at the yeah. time. So were they, was that group sort of having, um, success in the sense that it made you think, oh, this could be a career path then? What was it that gave you that confidence to think, I'm going to hitch my wagon to this lot for a while? I don't think there was any particular success. I think they they maybe, some of these guys that I lived with were starting a comic at the time. Um, and I helped out a little bit. I helped out on the lettering and um, design and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, just stuff that I kind of already had a bit of a grounding in. It wasn't successful i would say but but it was successful in the fact that it got published like it was like oh these guys can make a comic and it gets published so yeah and it was my first sort of professional experience i got to go to conventions with them and just kind of learn the the world a little bit from from a relatively safe place yeah what did your uh what did your family think about your journey i suppose because lawyer dads can sometimes be have high expectations i'm guessing <laughs> he was yeah he was pretty worried um i know they were they were quite worried um mm. and and they really got the sense they thought i would end up uh, dead in a ditch somewhere right but you know it's now it's been so many years like the you know obviously the success of scott pilgrim and stuff uh yeah it w- it worked out. I'm, it worked I'm, out. Yeah, exactly. So there there were some dicey years there. I'm sure. And then you you moved to Toronto, and I'm guessing this is you know f- starts to feel like home quite quickly because it's obviously such a key part of the work that you start to produce. So how quickly did you find your people when you got to Toronto? Uh, well, I moved there with a friend who I knew online, Christopher Butcher, who's still one of my my best friends of all time, and and um, so I had I had someone. Um, I didn't know him very well, but we knew each other online and we became um, pretty close as roommates. And then, yeah, I eventually, I think it was probably almost a year in, I was looking for more friends and I found this, I don't remember exactly how I met these guys, but there was a group of, of guys and girls that were making music. I was making music at the time. So it was, this was all music-based. This this was totally outside of comics. Sure. Um, Chris worked in the comics shop. So that was, I had my comics side covered. But um, I was still really interested in music and indie bands and things. So, um, yeah, I just met these kids who were doing cool stuff. And I was in my 20s. They were in their 20s. And, and um, it turned out they were all from northern Ontario like me. And, and um, we all hit it off. And, uh, yeah, so we spent a year or two doing doing band stuff. And mm-hmm. then um, eventually I, I moved again. I just I moved about two, three years into living in Toronto. I moved to Halifax, Nova Scotia. We're just trying to honor Mr. Neal's tremendous script, which I think is truly a tribute to this great city. I'd even go so far as to say Toronto is a character in the movie. A major character. Really? He said that? Who did he cast to play Toronto? Yeah, in the, you know, in the new Netflix series, the there's there's quite a few scenes of the sort of band rehearsal and that sense of, you know, everyone's sort of discussing whether the band is any good or not. And, you know, they think it might be good, but they're not quite sure if they're good enough to make it. And they've got acquaintances whose bands are now successful and are celebrities and stuff. It all feels very true and like biographical in a way. Was that sort of the, the vibe that you were experiencing at that time? Yeah, you know, I tried to portray that somewhat truthfully in Scott Pilgrim um, and still to this day in the new, new series. I always do wish it could have 
kind of made it a little more grimy. It was always dirtier in real life than, than <laughs> in comics. Um, but it's hard to depict that, um, especially when you want to draw fast and, and cute uh, stuff. So, What do you mean by grimy? Oh, just the environments, just everything uh, right. covered in filth and, and <laughs> you know. I think there's just some of that is, is kind of missing. Like the disgusting venues and all of that. Yeah, you know, I try to portray gross toilets and things like that, but it's it's not um yeah, no, it's not as nasty as I as as real life was. Yeah, yeah. And then the you know, the characters in Scott Pilgrim that you're you're writing, you know, there's a real range of romantic experience, I think, among that little group of sort of seventeen to twenty four year olds and You've got uh, Scott and Ramona, you know, have loads of exes each, obviously, but then some other characters have only ever held hands and stuff. You know, where where were you on that continuum at that stage of your life? You know, if that's not too personal a question. I <laughs> no, 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 yeah, no, I mean, most of it's public record anyway, but I mean, uh, yeah, no, I had I had a few kind of like girlfriendy things in high school. College didn't, didn't happen, as I said, I was, I was kind of like a, didn't didn't find my way into the social world there um yeah i kind of had like a an emotional thing like with someone online and then when i moved to toronto that kind of ended and then um in toronto i met uh, my my the woman who became my first wife uh hope larson who um i met her uh probably in 2002 so i was working on scott pilgrim already when i met her oh okay yeah she inspired so much of it yeah, at the yeah. time just just because of you know that was that was my first sort of a longer relationship that felt like it was building to something greater. And, and yes, we got married, um, while I was working on the first book, um, uh, 2004. Was there a, was there an Envy Adams in your life as well? Was, was that based on anyone or? Um, well, yeah, it was kind of an amalgamation. The bit of, a bit of it was the emotions that I had, that were left over from this sort of intense online thing I'd had. Yes. And, and, um, and then just being in the indie world a little bit and seeing, seeing people, seeing performers, you know, and, and seeing the, the grimy environments and the contrast with these, um, you know, stylish performers and things that, that just sort of started to fascinate me. And, and it was a character that I wanted to explore. I didn't really know anyone like that personally. Right. Yeah. And, you know, to, to come back to comics and you were, you were working for Oni Press a little bit at this time. And, you know, as you say, doing lettering work and things like that, how that's still like a bit of a leap to make to go into pitching and signing your first graphic novel. So how did that happen? Yeah, I think probably I came in blazing and was just like wanting to do a book right away. And and they kind of threw me a few bones because um, I, I don't think I was there yet. <laughs> so yeah, so I inked something. I remember fall of 2001, I inked a book for Oni. Um, I did a Spider-Man children's book around that time and uh, a few other things. And I was getting work from uh, Udon, which which was related to the guys that I worked with in California the year before. Yeah, so just I was just doing a lot of different little things and and just, you know slowly circling the idea of doing a graphic novel. It, it appealed to me. It just I had never done it. Um, I did I did a four issue series for Oni in uh, 2002 called Hopeless Savages, where I just did the art, uh, didn't do the story, and um, it was so taxing. It took all year, and it was. 96 pages of art and it was like the hardest thing i'd ever done right um but it, it really um laid some groundwork for me yeah and at w- what point are you thinking well, i want to i want to write the story as well probably the whole time yeah I, I mean i i i was curious to learn more by working with another writer but i, I always wanted to yeah, tell right. my own stories yeah let's uh brian let's come to your third game then so 
an absolute classic, this one, for the Super Nintendo. What's the game and why do you love it? Uh, the third one I picked was uh, Final Fantasy 3, a.k.a. 6. originally six and Japan was renumbered in, in the West. I was probably in high school and, and I think we rented it and I, I played it in one weekend and it was it was just a phenomenal experience. I would say it's kind of like the first the first time a game gave me like the same kind of like story excitement as as a movie or a, or a fantasy novel, the kind of things I would have been into at the time. Um, it just had all the twists and turns and it, and it really let you identify with the characters. Um, it was super strong and, and it was very simple pixel art, you know, random encounters. It, it was built on the same things that I've been seeing in games for so long, but it did so much more with them. Yeah, it's sort of got this great ensemble cast and you switch perspectives all the time and it's got that real classic, the first really classic, I think, Final Fantasy storyline, isn't it? For, well, it was, for, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, I mean, I loved, I remember playing the first one and and being really happy. And, and then Final Fantasy 2, I played a little bit. And the story always seemed really impressive and mysterious in that one. But yeah, Final Fantasy 3, it has this great ensemble. You're bouncing around. Everything's kind of exciting, moving fast. Um, the characters just have a lot of depth to them. You know, and but it's also, I think part of it is that it's still simple enough for you to project a lot. You know, the pixel art, the small characters, it's very stylized. Um, and as games went on, like, it, it, they become more and more realistic and you're kind of more external to you and you're not able to kind of draw that same connection. Yeah, I mean, if, if you compare Final Fantasy VI to the most recent one, Final Fantasy XVI, which is sort of a very Game of Thronesy styling and very serious, isn't it? It's... It's a it's a long way away from from the the world of Kefka and all of that sort of you know, you know. Yeah, there's just there's a layer of kind of whimsy and and just making shit up as we go along that that is kind of lost um, as games get bigger and bigger. I think yeah. uh, and and more serious and more money behind them. Yeah, um, and I just I you know I love that they reconcile this kind of gorgeous uh, Yoshitaka Amano art with the uh, you know crude kind of pixel art and and they try to this you know bridge that gap somehow there there's some magic to that for me yeah absolutely so wait you you say that you 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 borrowed this from from blockbuster <laughs> i think so yeah i have a copy of it now but i don't i don't remember owning it i have it right here oh nice the original the original yeah 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 this is the u.s version or probably the canadian version but um there's 94 on here yeah but that yeah, ninety four. Yeah, Chrono Trigger was ninety five, wasn't it? But did, I mean, that's, right. that's that's like a lot of games to get through in a weekend, isn't it? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember if we got all the way to the end. I feel like we did, um, but yeah, it was probably just nonstop. Because um, you know, if you'd rented the games, you you could never be sure your save would be intact next time you rent it. If you <laughs> even wait a week, it could be deleted by someone else. <laughs> um, that's before they invented save cards and things like that. Yeah, right. Okay, so so. 
to come back to your story, so you you published your first graphic novel, Lost in Sea, Lost at Sea, sorry, in uh, two thousand and three. Is that right? Uh, yeah, December. Yeah, almost uh, twenty years ago. Yeah, I read an interview in which your your editor on Scott Pilgrim, James Lucas Jones, described the experience of reading the first draft. Uh, and he he said it was so refreshingly different. It's rare we get the opportunity to publish something almost indescribable. That's a lovely comment from an editor. But uh, you know, for you for you personally, were you aware of how different the book was? Uh, you know, when you handed it in, and did that give you any cause for concern? Yeah, I mean, I I think I knew it was different. It's very internal. It's not. Uh, there's not a lot of action. There's not even. There are dialogue passages, but a lot of it is nar- sort of narration. It's kind of diaristic. Um, I was really influenced by um, a cartoonist named Linda Berry, who did these sort of diaristic uh, vignette things um, that I, I can't really describe. But she was she was an alternative cartoonist for for years and years and years. Um, yeah, and then beyond that, I don't I don't know. It was my first book. I just um, I felt strongly about how I should do it but I had really not I didn't really have the chops or the understanding of what I was doing <laughs> I was just trying things yeah it, and it took a whole year and it was it was exhausting it was draining um and and uh I was uh I felt so like defeated by the time it came out I remember um it's just oh you did trickled out by the end of the year I think it came out maybe like December 7th or something and and I had started the very beginning of January which is not a long time at all in retrospect, but I mean, it just um, it felt like forever at the time, uh, you know, and I finished it and it came out in stores like four weeks later, which is unheard of. Gosh. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a mixed bag of experiences. I wasn't very happy with the cover that I designed. I, I got to design a new one a few years later, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I still, it's funny because like even all these years later, like I still just remember sort of the, the heartache of it and not, I don't really have like the positives. Really? That's so funny, isn't it? That's brains are strange like that. But uh, I mean, you must have started to get some good feedback quite soon. You know, when did you? When did that start to hit? And were you able to accept it, or were you still kind of thinking, ah? Well, yeah, I don't know. Um, I do think I got a one or two nice reviews written on it, uh, which was which was great at the time. I was starving for that sort of thing. But I mean, more importantly, I think Oni Press was like, okay, do another book. And that's when I started doing Scott Pilgrim. And that, that was pretty much right on the heels of Lost at Sea. I may had already started it by that time, started writing it at least um, by the time the book Lost at Sea came out. Um, and I just plowed into it and I worked on it for the next like eight months. It came out August the next year, which is <laughs> insane to me. Um, you know, that's less, less than eight months later. So, um, yeah, I really, I really just did it at top speed and, um, you know, but but ultimately, I didn't think Scott Pilgrim would be any more successful than Lost to Sea had been, which was, you know, modest indie-sized success. Um, I could I could go around to local independent events and you know hawk my wares, but that was about all I was expecting. Right. Yeah. And um, at some point, Scott Pilgrim does change your life. At, at what point did you know it, it had changed? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, it it, it was constantly changing. I I, I can't. You know, I can't get away from that. The life is constantly changing. So, mm, and that's yeah. one of the themes of Scott Pilgrim. So, yeah, you know, over the years, uh, the first few books, uh, I know the second book, I went, I went back to Toronto. I had moved to Halifax at that point and went back to Toronto for an event. And um, 
had like a long line, like a hundred or 200 people showed up to buy Scott Pilgrim volume two, which, you know, it previously had been a struggle to get one person to stop. And all of a sudden people were actually interested to see what happened next. So I was like, oh, a series was a good idea. I get it. (laughs) And yeah. And then volume three, I remember started appearing, um, you know, in the press more, people got more reviews. It made it to sort of the U S which was the big deal. Like entertainment weekly, I think reviewed it and things like that. And then, um, and then I moved to the U S sometime between volume three and four. So yeah, my life just changed in that way as well. Like it was yeah. a whole new environment, a whole new world. Incrementally. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. The series came out, I would say before the real dominance in the culture of Marvel superhero fiction. Although of course you said earlier about how in the eighties Marvel comics were everywhere, but uh, I suppose when Scott Pilgrim first comes out, it's it's yet to be the Marvel that we know today, right? But, um, you know, Scott and Ramona are, are sort of superhero adjacent, I think it's fair to say. How, how much were you pushing, you know, how, I guess how much of that tradition, the superhero tradition was in your mind when you were writing and, you know, what were you looking to push against? I mean, maybe in some ways I have to be thankful that Marvel was kind of in a fallow period at that time. You know, they came back to such prominence later, but they kind of had a crash in the late 90s and there was a little bit, bit of a gap there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when my interpretation of superheroes comes from video games, comes from anime and things like that, but it also comes from my childhood reading X-Men and Daredevil and, and those things. I thought to myself as I was making Scott Pilgrim, um, you know, comics are about superheroes. They're about combat. They're about action. Um, so I was trying to come up with something that nods to that while not, not fully embracing it. And yeah, just playing with, playing with kind of the tropes and, and the character types and just the things I wanted to see and, and the Marvel versus Capcom kind of over the top combat was, um, just, it was the only combat I knew in my life. I had hands-on experience with that kind of combat and no other. So, um, yeah, I just kind of meshed the two, you know, the Frank Miller, daredevil plus the marvel versus capcom uh, anti-gravity kind of combat yeah it's a good recipe i would say and um yeah this is a craft question i guess but you know the you mentioned there each volume coming out the expectations and the attention rising with each new volume how much had you planned what the story was going to be and how long it was going to run for and at what point did you think, well, it's going to be six volumes and all of that kind of stuff? I mean, I think it was pretty early on because it's sort of inherent to the structure of um, of the concept, which is he has to fight seven evil exes. And I thought it would be funny if two of them were twins and also I would have one less book to work on. So it was, <laughs> um, you know, it was kind of basic math at that point. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I thought there's one of them should be a girl and one of them should be a movie star. I just had all these kind of notions in my head. Um, and what caused it to sort of coalesce pretty early was that, um, that Edgar Wright came calling and, and wondered about what, what was going to happen in the subsequent books, which I had the vaguest idea. I had written sort of a map for the first three. <laughs> and then I knew there was Gideon again at the end at some point, but that was about all I had. So yeah, when, when the movie people kind of asked is when I had to sort of start feverishly <laughs> scribbling. Right. Well, let's put a pin in that. We'll come back to pick up the story there. But for now, let's come to your fourth game. And so, which I would say is quite different to the previous three. <laughs> Tell us about this one. People can change. Um, 
Well, this one, we, yeah, we've leaped forward in time, I think, um, and we're looking at Dark Souls. So, I mean, we skipped over so much. Like I said, the, the X-Men and Street Fighter games, like, in the 90s, they were huge for me. Uh, another thing that was huge for me was, like, tactical games, Final Fantasy Tactics, Disgaea, even, like, down to uh, Fire Emblem Awakening was huge for me back about 10 years ago. But none of those games kind of stuck with me the same way. And that whole period, uh, like we were talking about, the 3D kind of turned me off. The, the quick pivot to 3D in gaming around the late 90s was just premature i thought i really missed the pixel art you know i played a lot of games but not, none of them stuck with me quite the same until um dark souls which is uh i had played demon souls i had played many 3d games but dark souls is the first one that kind of really got into me and um i i didn't like it at first i didn't really honestly get deep into it until the beginning of the pandemic life is shit i might as well play this really hard game so yeah so years later i just i picked it up again i had bought it when it came out and i just picked it up again one day and i thought i'm going to beat it and um and eventually i did and it was like a whole kind of spiritual journey to get there so wait how far had you got in your first attempt then all those years ago i don't remember i know i had beat sort of the first boss or two i had gotten like a little ways in but it was I'd played it when it first came out, like before any of the game facts and things like that. So it, it was completely opaque. And if you know Dark Souls, like the the game is so opaque. It's one of the most opaque games. It, it harkens back to like the original kind of adventure for Atari. It's like, a, it's so hard to um, kind of grasp what to do next and what to do at all. And I hated that at first, but now I love it. It's one of my favorite features of the game. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. We've, I've had a few guests on who said the same thing. and But you're right. I mean, I, I reviewed Dark Souls back in the day. We were playing playing the game before before there was any information on the internet. And, uh, you know, we just sort of, there would be a group of reviewers that sort of all banded together over email to try and share tips because you're so lost at sea, not knowing what to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then you come back to it during the, the pandemic and at this time you've got lots more information. So yeah, what made you push through? I don't, yeah, I don't think I, um, I've played all of them now, I think. Uh, all the all the Souls sort of sphere of games. Um, I like to try and play them without, without guidance to at least sort of get through each section because I think it's so much of the pleasure is just not knowing uh, the slightest thing about what to do or where to go and, and slowly puzzling it out. And, and you kind of feel like a genius when you figure out that there's just like a corner that you missed and that it's actually where you're supposed to go all along and they've intentionally been hiding it from you. Yeah. Um, I hate to spoil that stuff for myself, but the, the facts are incredibly helpful. Like when, when it comes to just, um, you've completed a section and there's some incredibly crucial thing that you've missed because they intentionally hid it from you and, and you need it for the end of the game. And that's where the, the, 
internet comes in handy. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, tell me about how how the film came about then of, of Scott Pilgrim. So you you sort of intimated there that Edgar Wright approached you at some point during the writing process. Is that how it happened? I think so. Yeah. The the lore is that um, our producers <laughs> um, Jared and Adam they met him at a screening of Shaun of the Dead in the summer of two thousand four. Jared was only 23 at the time. He was Scott Pilgrim aged, I remember. And mm-hmm. he... This is Jared LaBeouf. Jared LaBeouf. Yeah, he he was kind of the guy at, this, at the production office that would go to the comic store on Wednesday and just see what's going on. He just got Scott Pilgrim early and before anyone had really discovered it. And he handed it to Edgar before, still before anyone had discovered it. It was still, you know, month old at the most. Edgar read it miraculously and responded to it. And... um yeah, at some point, someone called me and said, "said um, this guy uh, from England is interested in doing a movie of your, of your book. Uh, and I was like, oh, what's going to be like a whole series? Like, I don't, you know, as, as it was just the very first book, it was the very beginning, like the very beginning of the story. Yeah, so it was intimidating, but it was exciting. Um, it was hard to believe. Uh, they sent me a copy of um, Shaun of the Dead and I think of Spaced. And I was like, oh, this guy is the real deal. Like, this is actually, you know, a, a genius. And, and we're, we're simpatico in so many ways. So, yeah, it was it was very exciting. It was very, um, it was the biggest thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, eventually, I remember he called me later that uh, winter. You know, it just, this slowly started rolling. And it took about five years to actually manifest. Mm-hmm. But um, we were in contact that whole time. And he was such a... Um, I now when I look back like I wonder if the books would have even happened without him because it was like I knew at least one person was reading them and that's such a huge thing you know when you're when you're persevering on these long projects wow I didn't know that that's so cool and um you yeah for the Netflix show you managed to reassemble you know so so many of the creatives involved in in the film I can't imagine that was super easy well, how did how did it all come about? How did you manage to bag everyone again, get them all in the right place at the right time? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it is kind of a magical. Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, the right place at the right time, and so many different things. So many kind of stars had to align. But I do think um, there was a charity reading that we did a few years ago that sort of got us all talking a lot. And, and it was fun. Like we put on a show during the pandemic. I, I was live drawing on Zoom and it was, um, it was hectic, but it was fun. It was early days of the pandemic. Pre-Dark Souls. Pre-Dark, probably, yeah. I think I started a few months later, yeah. And, uh, you know, we were all excited. I think at that time, though, we had already spoken a little bit about the possibility of the anime. Because I remember Netflix called me around January 2019. Mm. I think Edgar had already floated it to them. But it did rekindle friendships to do that charity thing and then um you know we we started working on the uh scripts for this show sort of hoping in the back of our minds that everyone would would say yes and would want to do it and just trying to write something good enough that they would be happy that they said yes so um and eventually we asked and and they said yes and it was actually quite uh quite fast like edgar sent a very nice note i think we had like three or four people saying yes within an hour which was so we, we were having a like size of relief that whole day, yeah. Oh, what a lovely moment. And how nice that it grew out of this charity thing as well. What a lovely foundation for it. It's great. Yeah, it's beautiful. You know, it's it's nice 
we're all kind of coming back together and, and it's just, uh, I think a lot of us had a really good experience back then. Uh, I certainly did. Um, you know, I've seen interviews with, with like Michael Sarah and, and such where, where they're just, uh, reminiscing or, you know, Michael said he, he felt depressed after the movie came out and it was all over. And, you know, I, I really <laughs> felt the same and we never really talked about it. So, um, it was really great to sort of be able to bring everyone back together for this sort of silly new, uh, take on the story. We, we talked quite a lot about how you never expected Scott Pilgrim to become Scott Pilgrim. Um, you know, that the kind of se- success that we're talking about here that you've enjoyed is something that, you know, many artists or writers kind of long for, right? But it's, I guess it can also have quite complicated effects on the creative process. You know, there's lots of stories of where huge towering success can then overshadow a life in some ways. You know, how have you dealt artistically with having this huge thing in your own story? Yeah, it's been such a interesting one too, because it's, it's so, it was started out so indie and small and, and then gradually kind of snowballed. And, um, and then the movie was not initially a huge hit. So we all kind of scattered and kind of forgot about it or, or, you know, we're told to forget about it. And, and then it just never really went away for me. Um, the, you know, people talk about it to me all the time, everywhere I go, people are still excited about Scott Pilgrim. So it just, it never really died. And I thought it would die. Um, I thought I would be forgotten within, you know, months after the movie kind of flopped, you know, and I just sort of take it one day at a time or one year at a time and see, see how it's evolving. And, and then eventually, you know, I did, I didn't really set out to make a series, but, um, the, the things started falling into place and ultimately it became easier to make the series than not make the series. Like it just, <laughs> for, for some reason it just felt like kismet. Yeah. Very nice. Um, I've just got one little aside question, actually, before we come to your fifth game. You you created the art, artwork for Fez. Is that is that true? The oh, that's right. Fez? Yeah, yeah. Just and, just the cover art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did how did that come about? Uh, I don't I don't remember. <laughs> I knew Phil a little bit. I just don't remember the sequence of events. I I don't remember how I knew. Oh, I might have known Phil because. This is Phil Fish, previous Phil guest Fish. of the show. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, we produced our game in Montreal, and he was in Montreal. And maybe we met through that, or maybe we just were emailing, or something, you know, pre-social media. Yeah, so I don't I don't quite remember. I would have to trace through emails and stuff. But yeah, we knew each other just a little bit. And um, and yeah, he just sort of asked me out of the blue, and I thought, he sent me the game pre-release, and I was so right. blown away by it. And uh, I thought, I have to, I have to yeah. do this. Um so yeah, I, I did my best. We wanted to do something that was sort of like, um, like an old uh, Super Mario game it, sort of poster. I remember we talked a lot about the the Game Boy Mario games. They had these beautiful uh, illustrations with tons and tons of characters on them. Mm. Um, and I wanted to do something that depicted a whole world. So I, yeah, it was one of the few kind of like large scale, colorful, just environmental things I've ever done. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was out of my normal wheelhouse, but it was a fun challenge. Yeah, and, uh, I thought it looked pretty good on the Xbox Marketplace or wherever it used to be. <laughs> yeah, it looks so good. Yeah, great. All right, let's uh, let's come to your fifth and your final game, then, Brian. Tell us about this one. Yeah, um, well, yeah, I decided to slant a little more modern. So this one was um, Hades, uh, which I think came out in twenty eighteen or nineteen. <laughs> Thank you. 
I didn't get into this game right away. Um, if you haven't played it, it's sort of like, I don't know even how I would describe it. It's an action game that is an overhead 2D-ish game that, that resembles maybe like a, like a StarCraft or something, like or Diablo, where it's like overhead and lots of little sprites and you're it selecting is. things. And um, But it doesn't play like that at all. It's just it's a fast-paced kind of arcade game in the... Mm you know, very traditional style, like going back to uh, Smash TV or something like that, like from the 90s. So, um, yeah, it just, uh, it, it it's based in Greek mythology. The, the art is very nice. Uh, the story is well-written. But ultimately, what, what grabs me about it is that I just have played something like 400 hours of it. Like, it's just, <laughs> I could play it forever. And I thought if I'm doing my perfect console, I need um, I need a game I could play forever. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're sort of trying to work your way out of Hades, aren't you? Through the different tiers, you're trying to escape your father. Yeah, fa- no. Your father is Hades, and 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 yeah. then as you go on, you realize that the story is not quite what it seems, and people have ulterior motives, and the game itself sort of has ulterior motives, and then ultimately you have to be the game a number of times in order to get the true ending, and then it kind of encourages you to play forever essentially um he's you're sort of the custodian of the underworld at that point mm-hmm. wonderful yeah they're made by a previous guest of the show greg kasavid and they i think hades 2 is out next next year so we've got that to that look forward sense. to and I, I keep saying like do we need hades 2 <laughs> i've already <laughs> sucked my entire life into hades but yeah there's something there's just something about it and i also i really like to play this mode where um unsanctioned mode where you delete your save every time and you start start fresh right. um, i just find that endlessly compelling for some reason just the simplest version of the game i still right. play the full you know full bells and whistles ending game because you unlock abilities and stuff as you go mm-hmm. but the one with the the kind of virgin game is so much fun for me i just i just tackle it see how far i can get it just clears my mind yeah I love that. Other sanctions. What a great way to put it. Probably is sanctioned, <laughs> but it's it's not in the game as an option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Right. Let's uh, let's go through your console then, Brian. So we've got River City Ransom, Monkey Island Two, Final Fantasy Three Slash Six, Dark Souls, and Hades. So good. How you feeling? That's pretty good. Yeah, you know, I wanted to represent... I didn't want to stick with the 90s stuff necessarily. Um, I wanted to kind of... Because that's not who I am necessarily anymore. I still like to play those games. Um, but it's hard. It's harder and harder to get kind of deep into uh, an NES game for me as I age. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, so we're going to need a, a name for your console to market to the world, Brian. Got any ideas of uh, what we might might be, this what we might call it? <laughs> oh wow! Ugh, I'm bad at names. This is uh... while you're thinking about that, I was going to ask actually. This might this is an extremely mild spoiler for the Netflix series, but tell me if you want me to cut it out. But the uh, the Virtual Boy does feature quite prominently in one of the episodes. Did you ever have one of those? <laughs> I never did. Yeah, if we don't say any more context, yeah, we can mention the Virtual Boy. Yeah, we had to um, mock up sort of a fake enough version of it um to pass sort of the legal test oh i see um for the show um so that was its own unique okay. challenge maybe i should pretend that i didn't recognize what console it was based on then for the lawyers you know i just i always loved the sort of the red of it and it's it's so uh so bizarre really it's, and and um, it's just it's a fun thing to think about yeah but for me i don't know what would my console be um 
I see, see my thing is like, I've always, maybe this comes from my parents, but, um, I always called the thing just the Nintendo. And now, even now I call the switch the Nintendo <laughs> so much or the game boy. And I noticed right. I call the, I, I don't have a PS five. I have a PS four, but I always refer to it in my mind as the PS three. Right. And I think I'm just out of touch with reality or time living in the past. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's part, maybe part of it is from always getting the consoles late in the life cycle. That's, that's something that I always kept up like uh, PS two. I got right before PS three came out mm. and this PS four belonged to my, to my wife. So I, it's not even, I don't consider it my own, That maybe that's why I call it a PS three. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm just, I don't know what, what are consoles? They always had like a, I always like stuff like wonder Swan that are just sort of abstract. Yeah. So good. Wonder Swan things. Yeah. Well, maybe you should pick an animal and a and an emotion. <laughs> oh, let's go with um the uh, puffin because um that was the I sang a song about a puffin in, in when I was in grade two and won a contest. So oh, you did that was that, that was <laughs> full circle to the music contest that I won as a child. Yeah, puffin, that's pretty good. But I'm glad I asked you about that then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ah, oh, this has been great, Brian. Thanks so much for your time. Just, uh, just before I let you go, what's uh, I imagine? I imagine you're going to have a break, but uh, after you've enjoyed the reaction to the uh, to the anime, what's what's next for you, artistically speaking? Do you think any plans? Uh, well, we have this the 20th anniversary of uh, the Scott Pilgrim books next year, so I'm working on a bunch of um, new editions and hopefully merch and things like that. I've been very scrupulous about not doing, not overdoing it with merch over the years. I think for the 20th, I can indulge myself a little bit here. So we have some cool stuff coming out, uh, which I have to draw, which is uh, going to take a lot of time. Yeah. I haven't been drawing much this year with the series that I let other people draw for me, um, but it's fun to get back into it. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, uh, yeah, and you, I still owe my publisher a book. So I'm working on a, a graphic novel uh, called Worst World that was announced many years ago. Mm-hmm. One day it'll get finished. Still coming along. That's oh, good to hear. Brilliant. Well, I wish you all the success in the world with the with the show. It's it's wonderful. Thank you for making it and putting it into the world. Thank you, Simon. Brian Lee O'Malley, everyone. Seventeenth of November, twenty twenty three. That is when the Netflix show based on Brian's hit graphic novels is out on Netflix. Um, it is called Scott Pilgrim Takes Off. And uh, yeah, as you would have guessed from that conversation, it's not what you're expecting. So they've managed to keep that very, very quiet, I think. And I think most people on the internet are sort of expecting a animated version of the movie. Uh, this is not that. It starts off a bit like that and then it changes, as Brian was explaining in that conversation. No spoilers here, but it is well, well worth your time. So go along, listen to that from Friday. Um, yeah, cool. what a thrill to be able to talk to Brian. I, I read Scott Pilgrim, I think, from either the first or the second volume before, uh, while he was still writing it. Um, so an early adopter and it meant a lot to me at that time. And um, yeah, I absolutely loved it and followed it and was excited every time a new volume came out. I would buy it from Dave's Comics in Brighton, which was two doors down from where I was working at the time. 
yeah, it was just what a great time of life. And <laughs> and um, Scott Pilgrim has sort of been there all the way along for people who know, right? We had the volumes, the the graphic novel, then the film in 2010, the the very good scrolling beat-em-up came out that I can't quite remember who made it. I think it was published by Ubisoft and that was on Xbox Live for a while and then disappeared off that but has recently come back. I think it came, you can buy it again on the Epic Game Store uh, uh, on PC. So so that's good, that's available again. And yeah, to, to have the, the show now back in the cultural spotlight again with the Netflix show, just wonderful stuff. Shout out to a mutual friend of mine and Brian's, Jared, who got to, who got name checked there by Brian, the producer, film producer, who uh, put us in contact. Thank you, Jared. That was very nice of you and um, a real thrill for me personally. Because uh, yeah, <laughs> I love Brian's work, and uh, yeah, I was slightly fanboying throughout that conversation. I hope I managed to keep a lid on it. Right, to other podcast matters. We are currently in the middle or in the early stages of the My Perfect Console of the Year 2023 knockout competition. So uh, anyone who is listening to this is free to vote in the knockout competition. Basically, this year, since the podcast started, by the end of the year, we would have had 52 guests, fittingly. Um, one for each week and they're all going head to head it's a random knockout and basically releasing them in batches and you vote for which one in these pairings you want to win and then the winners of those will go through to the next round blah 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 until we get up to just before Christmas when we will uh, or just before the end of the year I should say when we'll announce the, the best console of the year and maybe try and get the guest back on for a little victory lap that's the plan anyway um, you can go to patreon.com forward slash my perfect console. There's a public post there. It should be pinned at the top with the current voting details. Uh, just click on that and you just have to be signed into your Google account. That's just to make sure that people don't vote more than once. Uh, so hopefully you've got a Gmail account or something like that. As long as you're logged into that, you can take part place your votes and yeah each week it will be narrowing down and narrowing down for the final few stages it will be patreon supporters only voting on those so good incentive for you to become a supporter of the show you can do that at the same link patreon.com forward slash my perfect console i think it's four pounds fifty or five dollars a month and uh, you get to do fun things like that and join the community you get your episodes early out free you get bonus little qa episodes with some of the guests uh, and it's just a great way to help support the show. Uh, yeah, we're coming to the end of the year now. Just a few guests left. I've got a really, really uh, good few guests in the run-up to Christmas. And I'm very excited for the the last guest of the year who uh, I recorded with earlier this week. I'm not going to reveal it yet. I might not even reveal it to the Patreon supporters. might just go live with it uh, when it comes out. Let's see. But anyway... It's an exciting, a very, very exciting guest. Uh, I'm not going to say anything more than that. Um, yeah, what a great year it's been. Anyway, we'll do more of that in December. A bit more reflection and a few thank yous and things like that. Um, yeah, you can follow the podcast at twitter.com forward slash console with the O's removed. There's also, you'll be able to find a pinned tweet there with a link to the Google spreadsheet that's got all of the previous guests and their game choices if you're interested in that. 
Um, I'm very grateful to two of the Patreon supporters who are working. One is a back-end developer, one's a front-end developer, and they're working on a website at the moment which will display all of that information in a more handsome form and may even allow you to put up your own consoles with with your five games and things like that. So, yeah, that's they're beavering away on that. I'm very grateful to that. Uh, those are the kind of people who listen to this show good people and uh, generous people so yeah that's you thank you so much i'm going to be back again next week our guest is jason schreier the award-winning very well-known investigative journalist who focuses on the video game industry he made a name for himself at kotaku um, writing long investigative pieces quite often about um, sort of post-mortems of big games, how things went down, uh, where things went wrong and has had two hit books in which he's collated some of those stories um, and is working on a new book at the moment that's very exciting. And he now currently works for Bloomberg as well, doing much the same work. Jason's a good chap and we have a really, really fascinating chat about the sensitivities and nuances of doing that kind of reporting um yeah it's a good one so yeah come along next week it'll be good to have you back i will be here once again with jason with his five games and one more perfect console till then bye Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.